Okay, so uh, today we're going to be looking at natural theology. This is going to be interesting. Starting up there, so I'm going to have to find it. But so this, remember how this session got started? First of all, the introduction to apologetics. We looked at ontology. We looked at the law of contradiction. We looked at the law of uh, causality. We looked at sense perception. We looked at uh, analogical use of language. And then last week we looked into mystery and a little bit into monotheism. But the, the session that we had on monotheism was specific to, remember, the old philosophical historical, or the old, uh, yeah, the old uh, philosoph philosophical historical religious school. Remember where they were uh, saying, talking about the evolution, uh, particularly of monotheism. And I want to, that's why we looked at that. Going into the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at, well, we'll get to that here in a second, but, but we'll need to keep that in mind, and I'll, I'll kind of uh, show you why as we go along here, okay? So, what we're going to be looking at, again, is natural theology. This is actually different than general revelation. General revelation is, is, is God's uh, revelation in nature, okay? So, general revelation, though, is, and special revelation is the Bible. We've talked about that briefly. Uh, general, so, general revelation is what God does, Okay. Uh, natural theology is what we do. We um, study uh, God's revelation in nature, and that's basically what's called natural theology. And we'll look at that uh, as we go along. So there are two, basically two main differences of, of general revelation. You have mediate, and that's basically uh, revelation God gives through mediums. So like in, uh, so it's indirect. Psalm 19 uh, it says, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork. So it's saying, you know, and it's in the Bible, but he's, it's saying nature show. So the stars, the celestial bodies aren't gods, but they show the glory of God and the earth, his handiwork. Okay. So it's, it's, it's even in, in the Bible, but that's an indirect, that's immediate. So it's everything from without. Uh, immediate is direct revelation that he plants in us. So like in uh, Romans 2, he's, it, it, uh, Paul talks about God writing the law in our hearts, uh, giving us conscience. So this is what God uh, plants into us. This is what uh, Calvin refer refers to. This is our first Latin. Uh, Calvin referred to this as sensus divinitatis, or the sense of the divine. Some people call it the sensus uh, deitatis, so the sense of uh, deity. They can be, I mean, the, this is more proper though, uh, because well, I don't want to get into that, uh, but, uh, but um, so that's what, again, that's the sense of the divine that God plants into us. And what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and look at Romans 1, uh, chapter, or verses 15 through 22, to, to talk about really what uh, Paul says to do about this. Um, everyone, yeah. Real quickly, though, so again, general revelation is that revelation he gives to everybody everybody gets general revelation. Special revelation, obviously, there are still primitive lands, even in this world, who still haven't heard the gospel, uh, even today. You know, it's two, been 2,000 years, but that's why we're still, you know, going to the ends of the earth. Um, so, let's go ahead and go to Romans 1, again, verse 15. So, I'll wait for y'all to turn there. Or scroll there, as it were. <laughs> Should be on it already, but yeah, go ahead and go to verse 15. You ready? 
Okay. And we're just going to kind of look at these verse by verse. We're not doing an exegesis on them right now. I just want to talk about this as it applies to general revelation and in particular natural theology. Okay, so verse 15. So it's, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So he's, so first of all, he's laying out the gospel. Okay, he, he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And then he goes on for the Jew, for, and we're going to skip 17 because we're going to talk about that some other time. But it is the power of God, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Again, he's setting up the gospel, what the gospel is. Now, let's go to verse 18. For the, vath, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's key. Remember that. Uh, so the wrath of God is revealed, so that's another revelation, from heavens against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We'll get to that. Uh, 19, because what, may be, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So again, so this is, that's uh, immediate and immediate. He's shown it to them and he has uh, planted it in them. Uh, it's manifest in them. Uh, 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Remember, let's go back to the sense perception class. Being understood by the things that are made, immediate, uh, even his eternal power uh, attributes and Godhead uh, so that they are without excuse. Okay, so real quickly, let's just look at this real quickly. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Isn't that interesting? Again, let's go back to the, the sense perception uh, class where everything we see, especially in, in faith, doesn't have to manifest in sight. We see it in ourselves, okay? Um, being understood by the things that are made, again, that's mediate. Even his eternal power, that's his attribute and Godhead. That's his divine nature, his divinity, his being. Okay, so let's go back to ontology, okay? And we're just going to kind of breeze through this again we're, so that they are without excuse. That's key. 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. Now, verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools because they denied God and, and changed yeah, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Okay, so this is the session or this is the section that I've been talking that I've been alluding to this whole time when I've been saying that the, the problem with people, not disbelieving in God isn't that they lack information. The problem with people in disbelieving in God is because they hate him. They suppress the truth. Everybody sees his revelation. Everybody, and he's manifested in them. And then he goes on to say, you know, all this evil that people do. Read, read the rest of this. Read chapter 2. Uh, and, and you'll really see this um, more, more manifest. But again, that's, that's really showing that it's not that, you know, people disbelieve because they don't have enough, you know, all these weak excuses uh, so that they are without excuse, in fact. Um, so that's pretty much just, again, we were just going to go briefly through that. So what he's saying is general revelation produces natural theology. So this is where we get natural theology. General revelation produces what we do with it, which lays the foundation 
of the universal guilt of man. A lot of people will ask, what about the native innocent, you know, the innocent native in Africa? Then anybody answer that? Not you. <laughs> anybody answer? Can anybody answer what happens to the innocent native in Africa who's never heard the gospel, never touched, received it at all? Anybody answer? Okay. So, again, this general revelation, there are, is, to be honest with you, what happens to the innocent native in Africa? Nothing. He, once the innocent native in Africa dies, he goes straight to heaven. Straight to heaven. There are no innocent natives in Africa, in England, in Botswana, in, in Guam, anywhere. So there are no innocent natives anywhere. This is universal. Now, this poor man might not have received the gospel, but he's received the general revelation. So the problem with man isn't what he does without the gospel. The problem with man is what he does with the information he does have. With the revelation of who God is in his revelation. Okay. Um, okay, now we're going to start turning to... Okay, let's look at uh, my... Okay, I even signed this one so that if y'all take a picture of it. Uh, so I'm already set. I don't even need to set the set up. Okay, so this is, this is a general... Uh, picture of what we're kind of looking at here. So here's here's God's revelation and it's objective. It's, it's absolute. And so it comes down and here we are. Here's man. Okay. And people, particularly scientists, but even theologians, because we're going to look at Immanuel Kant next week. And so we're going to be looking at Aquinas this week leading into Kant and we'll get to that. But right now, I want to emphasize that many people think that there's a barrier here between uh, God's revelation and man. Could be sin, could be science, could be all sorts of different things. We'll look at that as we go along. Uh, and, and with uh, th theology, this is what's called fideism, where, where there's, a, there's, a, there's a block, there's, a, there's, a, there's that in the way uh, from, from it coming all the way down. Now, Again, though, if, if, if that is true, then this never gets to us, okay? Okay? What we're going to show is this isn't the case at all, okay? So, let's look at what Aquinas had to say. Um, yeah, let's see. Okay. Well, we already looked, actually, let's, as we go into that, we already looked at Romans uh, 1, 15 through 22. And what Paul is saying, that the objective revelation does get through, through to man. That's, all, that's what he's saying there. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed, manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. He's not saying, however, you know, there's this sin in the way. <laughs> he's saying it gets through. So the objective revelation gets through. That's essential. It's essential. What we're trying to do in apologetics, when men come before Christ, when men or women come before Christ, they will be without excuse. That's what he, uh, Paul is saying. They will be without excuse, not a possible excuse. And so we'll look at different uh, even approaches to apologetic, apologetics two weeks from now. Um, but there are people who are called presuppositionalists. Okay, I don't want to get into that too much. Too much. But there are people who actually try to prove it basically beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's kind of a court scene kind of situation where, you know, you're proving God's existence basically beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, what the, the problem in that 
come, comes with that is that you still leave room for an excuse, you know, uh, that kind of a thing. But we'll look at that as we go along. Okay, here's where I kind of have to go back, back and forth here. Um, but, okay, uh, we're going to look at Aquinas. First of all, what I want to do is lay out <laughs> and tell you Aquinas, especially with Reformers, uh, Protestants don't always love Aquinas because uh, the, the Catholic Church refers to him as Dr. Angelicus, and so he's the angelic doctor. They use him a lot in their theology, and he came before the Reformation anyway, so I think it's unkind to take all of his theology in that, in that perspective, in that vacuum. However, his natural theology, even people reject, and we'll get to him here in a second, uh, but, but I just want to lay that out um, in the beginning. But what Aquinas was doing was, was using Augustine, and he was using Romans, Paul's uh, revelation. And Aquinas, or I'm sorry, Augustine basically just used Paul. But Aquinas was using Augustine and Paul. We'll see that as we go along. So the knowledge of God, again, is universal because general revelation and special revelation. Okay, so it's not just that, and we'll see how these two are applied. Okay, and hostility, especially in the church, for Aquinas, the Reformed Church has produced modern problems in secular theology, which is what we're gonna we're gonna look at, and that's part of it. Where this, uh, you know, this objection, this interference, kind of gets in the way. Francis Schaeffer. Okay, I like, I, I loved Francis Schaeffer. He passed, I mean, he was mostly in the 20th century. Uh, but his theology, his, his philosophies were, were very astute, were very profound. But one of, the th one of the things, if not the only thing, but I definitely disagreed with him on, he would always say that Schaeffer, or Schaeffer said Aquinas separated nature and grace uh, so grace is supernatural, which leads to our current crisis. And we're going to get to that as well. One thing I need to uh, emphasize here, though, is that, well, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, so what we need to do in order to, in order to really see Aquinas properly is ask the question, what problem was Aquinas trying to solve? Okay. And now in his day, uh, well, before his day, Islam was increasingly becoming kind of a threat to the church, um, and they were, but they were, they had profound, very potent, very, very uh, learned uh, philosophical thinkers uh, in that day. And so, what, what, what some uh, Muslim philosophers, particularly, um, what are their names? Avinos and Avicenna. Avicenna. Where is it? Uh, yeah, I don't really know how to pronounce it, to be honest with you. Uh, but they came up with um, integral uh, Aristotelianism. So what this is, is a synthesis between Muslim theology and Aristotle's philosophy. Okay. Now, what they came up with is the double truth theory. What this is, is basically something that can be true in philosophy but false in theology and vice versa. It can be uh, true in theology and it can be false in uh, philosophy. Same thing with science. It can be true in science and false in theology or it can be true in theology and false in science. Now, if I can take this and kind of take it into our contemporary uh, situation and try to show basically what that would look like now, it'd be basically like um, if you were to believe in macroevolution, there are people who believe in macroevolution that, that 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 basically man came from 
some cosmic accident and some primordial slime and we're just basically the objects of some fortuitous explosion that happened on a random Tuesday billions of years ago. Or, you know, so you believe in that, but then on Sunday, you know, when you on Sunday when you go to church, you believe in creation, you know. So, so you just put away your scientific approach, and you go to this theological approach. But the but creation. Remember, in in the creation where it says, God created the heavens and the earth, and then He just speaks light into being. Now. That'll get you thinking for days, just so you know. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. But beyond that, um, those two things cannot be reconciled. You cannot, on the one hand, believe in evolution and at the same time and in the same relationship believe in creation. But what they were doing was saying basically it just depends on kind of the day. <laughs> you know, so like on a Sunday, you believe in creation. On Monday, Tuesday, and the rest of the week, you believe in evolution. That is pure relativism. So Aquinas was really dealing with the same problem we have. There are people who say that say that now. You know, go ahead, believe in your Jesus. You know, go ahead and worship on Sundays. Go ahead and get into your house and read your Bibles and pray. But don't don't call it science. Don't call it knowledge. Don't call it real. You know, all this kind of a thing. But, you know, you can, you can accept that. But as long as you know that evolution is true, it's, it's, it's pure relativism. So, again, we already... Okay. Um, I don't know what that means. Two categories of revelation, either general or special. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, there are two, so Aquinas was noticing two different categories. He was... Separating these categories, basically. The, so general revelation, which is what we're talking about. So he's saying there are some things we can only learn from science. Or, uh, conversely, there are only some things we can learn from theology. So like science. The, the Bible has nothing to say about microbiology. Or, you know, the, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the circular motion of the, uh, you know, the system of the body and all that kind of a thing. Blood and all that kind of a thing. The Bible has nothing to say about that. On the, at the same time, you can never look into nature and find the drama of redemption, the, the, the God's redemption for mankind. Uh, you can... Uh, uh, Okay, you can, uh, um, you can learn many things about uh, who, the existence of God, but you can't uh, learn specific things that are only found in the Bible, right? right. So, we have, so we have those, okay? Now what he's saying, though, okay, what Aquinas did, so let's go back up to Schaefer, said that Aquinas separated nature and grace. What Aquinas did was distinguish between nature and grace, reason and faith, religion and science, but did not separate them. Okay, this is important. The first thing... The, one of the most important things you'll learn in theology, or you'll learn about in theology, or philo philosophy, or in science, is the distinction between the distinction and a separation. If I distinguish your body and your soul, I've done no harm to you. If I separate your body from your soul, I've killed you. There's a clear difference between distinction, distinction and separation. We see that? Okay. And that's what he was doing, okay? So that there are these two different things, but he came up with a third category. 
Here's our other Latin, articulus mixtus, which basically just means mixed articles. Uh, so it's revelation through uh, general revelation and special revelation. Again, going back to Psalm 19, the, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth his handiwork. So it's both in nature, it's the heavens and, and the earth, and it's in the Bible. <laughs> the same thing with uh, what Paul's saying in, in Romans 1. It's both in the Bible and it's in general revelation. Okay, now everything else is on here. Uh, and it's not, we don't have much more. Um, but the controversy is really in this one. It's really in the third category, the mixed articles. Okay, between, you know, what Schaefer's saying is he's separating them. What Aquinas is doing is uh, distinguishing them. Okay, uh, so many people think that, wait a minute, I don't think that's where it starts. Numbers, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. So many theologians suggest that uh, God is just assumed in Genesis 1-1, where it says, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. There are many apologists, there are many theologians who will just say, oh, look, it, the first word in the Bible is God. So it's just, pre, uh, it's just assumed in the Bible. And that's kind of how we have to approach it, you know. Uh, it's just assumed in the Bible, and, that, and that's just how you, that's how you come to faith. You just believe it. So you can't believe in the Bible until, you know, uh, that kind of a thing. But that would be a death knell to apologetics. That would be a death knell to apologetics or, or even theology. The, so God doesn't prove his existence in the Bible because he's shown it in Revelation, in, in his general revelation. He's shown that he exists. He doesn't have to. So he's not going to just continue to prove his existence in his special revelation. So we have to notice the distinction there, the clear you know, uh, difference, really. It's not even just a distinction. So... Uh, even, so, okay, let me get here in Bible and argue. Yeah, it's already proven. Yeah, through nature. So when, it, so when anybody picks up the Bible, they've already received God's re, uh, general revelation, so God doesn't need to prove himself twice. So the existence of God is proven by science and the Bible, and therefore, so far from being separated from, you know, theology and science, they're married. You can't have one without the other. And that's what Aquinas was showing. And in fact, even Augustine, he would always uh, encourage his students, learn as much as you can. Learn as much as you can in all the different areas as you can, because all, whenever you find truth, whenever you find truth, that is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. And so what Aquinas was saying was if it's true in science, it has to be true in the Bible and it has to be true in uh, uh uh, philosophy. And same thing, if it's true in philosophy, it needs to be true in theology and science. Now, we see certain controversies, like the Galileo controversy, Copernicus. In the 16th century, actually, the church, it was a doctrine that, that uh, the, the, the solar system was uh, geocentric. So the earth was in the middle, it was the center of the universe, really the, the center of the solar system. But that was doctrine. In fact, that carried over to the reformers. Calvin, Luther, both considered Copernicus as a devil of the church, looking to suppress, you know, bring down the church. And then he, you know, he he uh, uh, welcomed, he invited priests to Catholic. Well, then it was still just priests; <laughs> there was no separation yet. But um, uh, to come and look under his telescope, so he could prove that the 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 solar system is heliocentric. Sun is in the middle. Okay, and they refused. They refused to. So that's a huge black mark on the church. But what, what happened there? They corrected. So science corrected 
the church's theology, they did not correct the Bible. Okay, and that's that's important. It didn't it didn't change anything about the Bible. It just changed the wrong the misunderstanding we've had. Now this can go the other way around too. When you hear science scientists talk about you know something coming from nothing, that not only defies theology or philosophy, that defies science. It defies science. So that's when you need either a philosopher or a theologian to come in and correct science. Okay. So, but if it's true in theology, in proper understanding of, of, of God's revelation, then it must be true in science, and it must be true in philosophy. All truth is God's truth. And that's what I've been trying to get to get y'all to understand. Like, the reason I believe in Christ is that there's no other option. And this is the greatest and most wonderful and glorious plan that man could never make up. Okay? But, but all truth is God's truth. And you'll see that. You'll see that. That's why when, when science comes up with these ridiculous postulates, it's easy to tear down. It's illogical. You don't, even, you don't even need to be a theologian. You don't need to be a Christian. You can just be a logician. You can just know basic rudimentaries of logic, and you're set. I mean, it's, this, this isn't difficult. So, what we're going to look at next week is Immanuel Kant. He, and he was a believer, but he wrote a, a huge book, a very well-known book, The Critique of Pure Reason. And this was a watershed moment in history. This changed everything. Uh, and, and we'll look at that. Um, he, based, he really went against uh, Aquinas' approach to uh, natural theology. And, and we'll look at uh, the three different ways. There, there's the um, ontological argument, the cosmological argument, and he doesn't really address the moral argument because he ends up saying, thinking that uh, you know, we ought to uh, live as though there is a God because you know, morally... Um, even uh, Dostoevsky said, if God does not exist, all things are permissible. And we'll get into that. Okay, so we're closing with what I decided to do since, uh, I, like I told you all last week, this is my favorite book outside of the Bible. So I think every, every week I'm just going to choose certain excerpts from it and read that. <laughs> so y'all are going to hear it anyway. All right. Uh, now, now in, in his confessions, book 12 and 13 really all have all, everything to do with natural theology. So if you actually want to learn more about this, which I encourage you to do, uh, is, is read Augustine's book uh, um, 12 and 13. But he's got it kind of scattered throughout too. I'm in book 7, chapter 12, um, part 18. I don't know what that's called. But anyway, okay. Excuse me. Uh, I need to stop sipping like that. Picks up on there. All right. <clears throat> And it was made clear to me that all things are good even if they are corrupted. They could not be corrupted if they were supremely good. But unless they were good, they could not be corrupted. Uh, if they were supremely good, they would be incorruptible. If they, if, if they were uh, not good at all, there would be nothing in them to be corrupted. Pay attention here. <laughs> this is brilliant. For corruption harms, but unless it could diminish goodness, it could not harm. Either then, So either then, corruption does not harm, which cannot be, uh, or, as is certain, all that is corrupted is thereby deprived of good. But if they are deprived of all good, they, they will cease to be. For if they are at all, so for if they are at all and cannot be at all corrupted, they will become better because they will remain incorruptible. Now, what can be more monstrous than to maintain that by losing all good they have become better? Right? If then they are deprived of all good, they will cease to exist. So long as they are, therefore they are good. 
Therefore, whatever is, is good. Evil, then, the origin of which I had been seeking, has no substance at all. For if it were a substance, it would be good. Uh, I understood, therefore, and it was made clear to me that thou, ma thou madest, madest uh, all things good, nor is there any substance at all uh, made by thee. Um, not made by thee, I'm sorry, I was about to say, that make, okay. And because all that thou uh, madest is not equal, each by itself is good, and the sum of all of them is very good, for our God made all things very good. Okay, what he's saying is, first of all, in, 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 the revela in God's general revelation, first of all, he made, we read in Genesis 1, he, he created everything good. Now, through man's corruption, even nature has been corrupted. Okay, And so what he's saying is, you know, they couldn't have been corrupted unless they were originally good. Okay, Evil, though, that's why I wanted to break that down. And we've talked about this. Evil has no substance. Otherwise, it would be good. Evil doesn't need to exist. You have good, and all, all things are good. Evil's just gone. Evil depends on good to exist. Good does not depend on evil. Okay, good could just be. We've talked about that, right? All right. Any questions? Cool. Good to go. All right.